All right, good evening, everybody. Sorry about Facebook crashing for those watching online. It just happens sometimes. Um, is it going now? Good. We'll be in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, and I think that's as far as we'll get tonight, um, but we'll see. I have a couple sign-up sheets out there while you're turning there in your Bibles. Uh, one is for the um, conference coming up. If you signed up online uh, for the uh, leadership conference down there, and it's for anybody, anybody can come. Um, you're welcome to sign up online, but then also put your name down. We might be able to see who all's going and and uh, maybe catch some rides with each other and, and so on. Jenny and I will be going back and forth. We're not going to stay down there. Um, so we could off, offer rides to anybody who signs up and we, we know you're going. So um, that's available for you. Also, the Harvest Party is coming up October 31st. We put up a sign-up sheet for that. If you're interested in helping out in any way, go ahead and put your name down. We broke it down into hours this time, so only one hour at the bounce house, one hour at this and that. And uh, of course, inevitably, someone forgets um, and and says, you know, I, I did, I, you know, my five o'clock replacement not here. Well, just go away. That's okay. The kids probably aren't going to get hurt. You know, we're not going to hold you there. Like I don't want to get stuck there from four to, you know, ten o'clock at night. Um, we'll work it out. So. Uh, put your names down if you can come and help. Uh, it takes a lot of help to minister to these kids, and uh, the more the merrier. So that sign-up sheet's out there as well. All right, let's pray and we'll get started. Lord, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to study at the worship time was much needed to get our hearts and minds prepared uh, for what you have for us. As Paul writes this second letter to the Corinthians to um, encourage them um, that they've done the right thing, that they've received his first letter appropriately, and uh, they've made the changes necessary. And that's a tough thing to do, um, but he's encouraging them. And, and we thank you for Paul. What a heart to be wounded so deeply, to be hurt so badly by this church, but to still have such a love for them um, beyond his own hurt feelings. He wanted to help them draw closer to you. And that's so important, Lord. Lord, help us to have that same heart that Paul has by the end of this. In Jesus' name. Amen. It is such a beautiful letter. Um, he doesn't just write a scathing letter to the Corinthian church for their abuse towards him. Um, he writes an encouraging letter to rebuke them, to bring them back to a, a right relationship with God. If you don't remember the first Corinthian letter, the, how it started was there's a group inside the church that just didn't think Paul was all that. You know, they'd grown away from Paul. Uh, the first thing that Paul writes to the Corinthian church in his first letter was that I, I didn't come to you with anything other than Jesus Christ and him crucified. And for some, that was too simple. It was too light as far as, that was, as far as they were concerned. And so they began to acquire their teachers to bring them in. And of course, that moved them. Oh, boy, this is more exciting. And you know, there's a speaking fee that the guy would charge to come in, and they would pay the guy, and all. Oh, and you know, it's funny when you when you add money to something, all of a sudden that person, whatever they had to say, was more is more valuable. All of a sudden, you can't you can't give a free seminar, but you can give a seminar for a hundred dollars, and people think it's the great. You could give them the exact same seminar, but the hundred dollar one is worth far more than the free one. That's just the way people are. I don't know what it is. Uh, and so they just thought these guys were great, and and, and these new teachers did move them but move them in the wrong direction to the point where Paul, the freebie, <laughs> had to write him back and say, look, you need to get back to where we started, to what you first heard, to what you first believed. You've gotten so excited about these new teachers and you've acquired so much new doctrine that you've nullified what you believed in. Jesus Christ is, is gone from your mind. The resurrection we left off with is no longer valid, you say, no longer necessary. 
when that is the cornerstone, the linchpin to the salvation message, the gospel. So we brought him back for that. Well, it's been some time now. He's waited a little bit, and he's writing back to them this second letter, and they've received it. They've received it. And so he writes to encourage them. Now, he said in the last letter, I'm going to come and see you. Well, he hasn't been able to make it um, so far. Um, But he didn't want to wait for himself to get there and tell them personally. He says, I've got to write this second letter to let them know, you know, that I've heard about their repentance. I've heard about them turning back to the Lord and to this word and to all the good doctrine, the solid doctrine. They've removed a lot of the old stuff and that's wonderful, you know. So he has to write this second letter. And that's where we pick up our story tonight. He says in verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in Achaia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in our modern day letters, we usually write that at the end, you know. Uh, we, we, We make them guess until they're done. Who wrote this letter? Well, back then, these letters were written on scrolls. So you can imagine, you know, we got this new scroll uh, to us, but who's it to? You know, you got to roll it all the way in. And, oh, it's from Paul. So they say that right at the top, it's from Paul, and it's to you, and we love you. And he starts off with that. That, that salutation that's usually at the end is now at the beginning, at the, at the front. And it's interesting what Paul says here. He defends his apostleship. See, there were apostles. We understand there's the 12 apostles. Um, and Paul calls himself an apostle, claims the apostleship sent by God. But apparently in the Corinthian church, there's a group that says, yeah, but he's not like an apostle apostle, you know, he's like a light, apostle light, you know, uh, he still has that problem. And so Paul has to start off this way. Um, he has to defend himself a little bit. Now, Paul isn't an egotist. He doesn't care what people think of him. He's never cared what people think of him. If he did, he wouldn't do what he does. He'd, 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 he'd preach a much different message to get more people to like him. You know, He's never cared about that. But the problem is it's deceiving people. Uh, he, you're going to a church now that at first seemed to be started by the Holy Spirit, started by Paul, started by a man sent by God just for us to hear a message. What an amazing thing. But as time has progressed, and not a whole lot of time has progressed since he's been there last, they've decided that he wasn't really, I mean, he's not like Peter. He's not like John, or he's not like James. He's kind of a, you know, he's an apostle sort of kind of thing. And Paul's like, what do you mean? What are you talking about? And so to defend that is not to defend his honor, is to defend their belief and to their understanding of what God started with them. By, by removing that apostleship from Paul, they've undermined the entire uh, the, the bedrock of this church. Um, not that God builds upon a man, but he does, build a, he does send people, you know. Um, and so it's a dangerous thing. And so Paul finds himself having to defend that and says, look, I'm an apostle by Jesus Christ. I was sent by him just like everybody else was sent. And we know the story. In Acts chapter 6, when Paul meets Jesus on the road, you know, and uh, is blinded for a time and gets his sight returned and is brought in and sent by Jesus. You are going to minister to the Gentiles, Paul. I mean, he got a special message from Jesus. He says, I'm not an apostle by my own will. I'm an apostle by the will of God. And Timothy, our brother, now Timothy isn't the co-writer, but Timothy is with Paul at this time. And we've talked about Timothy, good, faithful young man serving Paul, 
helping him get the gospel out and being his right-hand guy and also, you know, finding elders for different churches and things like that. I mean, he really was in Paul's ministry, a wonderful young man in the Lord. To the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in Achaia, grace and peace to you. And I always, you always see that with Paul, grace and peace. And we've talked about that. You can't have peace with God until you understand the grace of God. But there's a deeper meaning here also. Grace is the, it's the Greek word. Um, it's the Greek version of, of, Greek, of, of how you say hi to somebody. Like if you were to go to Israel, you'd say shalom, which that's the peace part. But if you're going to go to uh, Greece, you'd say karas, you know, grace. You know? And so that's how they would greet each other. The Greek saints would say, Karas, you know, ah, Karas to you too. You know, I'm, there's more to that than, than just that one word, but that's the idea. I'm ministering to the Greeks and I'm ministering to the Hebrews at the same time. Karas, shalom. You know? what, a, what a wonderful way to build everybody up in the body of Christ. Your church is made up of several different groups of people, different kinds, Greeks and Jews. I'm greeting them both with the same greeting. We have the same Jesus. Um, there's unity here. There needs to be. Don't be divided behind that. The church was so divided at the time. We think our church is divided. Oh, the church is too divided today. They can't agree on anything. Oh, they didn't agree back then either. They had difficulties right away. The, 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 the Greek widows weren't, weren't getting their portion. That's where deacons came from. The first deacon was meant for one purpose. Hey, take care of those poor widows over there that aren't getting fed because they're not Jewish, full-blooded Jewish people. Where did that come from? You know, well, you know, and so Paul trying to erase all that, trying to continue on with the spirit of Christ. And that's an important part here, I think, for us to understand. It's not just Paul's opinion we're reading here. This is the opinion of God himself. Okay. Sometimes we make the mistake of, yeah, but that's what Paul thinks, or that's what James thinks, or that's what Peter thinks. No, this is authored by the Holy Spirit through these men. This is what God thinks. And so when God speaks, we need to receive God's word, you know? So when he says grace and peace, we have to understand that's God's heart. I don't want there to be division. There may be language barriers, but I want you to know that the Greeks and the Jews are equal in my eyes. All are believers in Jesus Christ. It doesn't make any difference. So get rid of that from your mind. There are some things that we bring in to our walk with Jesus that needs to go, prejudices that we have. We don't know we have them until we're called out by God's word on those things. And you need to accept that. Know that about yourself. I've got some problems when I come to Christ. I didn't just become super saint when I believed on Jesus. I may got the halo and it may be wearing it, but it's a little crooked, you know. It needs to be straightened a little bit. There's some things that God wants to work out of our hearts. We grew up in a culture that in some ways didn't accept certain people or certain lifestyles or certain uh, colors, you know, shades of melanin, you know. We're an awfully mayonnaise society here in Maryville, and so it's a little difficult when, when we run into people maybe a darker shade of melanin in their skin, and we're like, I don't know about them. I don't know. Why? You know? Well, I grew up that way. That's how my dad was. That's how my grandpa was. That's how I am. It's wrong. You're absolutely wrong. You're actually not seeing things correctly. You're not seeing things like Christ. You're not seeing things like Jesus. And those things that come out of you, are ugly need to change, you know? But it can come, oh, ah, they're poor, you know? Or I hang out with the rich people or the poor people or people that are like-minded in this way or that way. And I like, you know, it can be all sorts of different prejudices that we have, you know? It doesn't have to be um, just color. It doesn't have to be just 
um, you know, whether you're a Ukrainian or whether you're from Africa or whether you're from Mexico or whether you're from, you know, Ireland, whatever it is, you know, those things aren't the only things that can divide us. There's lots of different things. We need to be careful about that. And so I don't mean to make more of this than it is, but Paul is making a point here to the Corinthians. Look, you Greeks and you Jews, you need to get along. You need to understand there is no more Jew. There is no more Greek. There is no more slave. There is no more free. There's no man. There's no female. There's no male. It's all in Christ. And to get that changed and to let God change that, that's very important. Now, um, in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, when it talks about, when he, when he, when he begins this, um, grace, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That word, Lord Jesus Christ, the, the title that, that God has that Paul is trying to make a point, he needs to be Lord. That's not his first name. That's his title. That's who he is. He's Lord. Jesus is his given name. That's the name. Christ is what he does. He's a Savior. So Lord is authority. Jesus is his name. Christ is his, his mission, basically. Um, it's not just Lord Jesus Christ. And so we have to be careful when we just say these things and just get used to saying these things. Oh, yeah, the Lord Jesus Christ be with you and also with you. You know, I grew up that way. We just say that to each other. The Lord Jesus Christ be with you and also with you. I'm like, yeah, yeah, me too. He was never Lord of my life until I was born again. There's a scripture in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, and we know this. It's part of the Romans road, and it's part of every Sunday school teaching, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Okay. I believe that, right? Well, then we have this verse that started with Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. It's not that simple. It's not just simply saying, the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. No, it's one thing to say it. It's one thing for him to be it in your life. When he says in Romans, when Paul writes to the Romans, you need to confess that Jesus is Lord. You're saying, Jesus is going to be in charge of my life. Maybe we should say it that way from now on. From, from, from this point on, Jesus is going to be in charge of my life. I'm going to do what he tells me to do, and I'm not going to follow my own will anymore. I mean, maybe it needs to be more thorough than just saying the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't just confess, Lord, when he says this very clearly, Jesus says, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, they're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. See, it's the actions that mean you forgot to say Lord Jesus. No, I may have forgot to say it, but I certainly live it. People can see that Jesus is Lord of my life. He needs to be. I think that's one of the biggest things we need to preach and scream in the Midwest. It doesn't matter whether you have Jesus in your back pocket or not. It doesn't matter whether you've grown up in church and been churchized, inoculated with the gospel your whole life. Is Jesus Lord of your life? Are you truly saying to me that you can go to that and then go on Sunday morning to church and worship God? You can do that on Friday and Saturday night, and then you can come and sit here calmly without any conviction? He's not Lord of your life. Jesus has to be Lord. He has to be in charge. He has to be the one you ask and talk to and follow. You've given up. You've realized your sin has separated you from God. Your leading your own life has separated you from God. 
I'm no longer going to be the Lord of my life anymore because me being in charge ruins my life. But God needs to be Lord. We skip over these verses awfully quickly, I think, and we really need to meditate on them. He says, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, for I never knew you. You practice lawlessness. This is the end of that section of Scripture in Matthew chapter 7. Jesus was making a very strong warning. Jewish people, which is who he's really talking to in that section, you say you have the Lord, but you, you don't. You've got, the, you've got the temple where you worship God and you kill all the animals and you do all the sacrifices and you obey the law and you have the law, but you don't, he's not Lord. He's not in charge of Israel anymore. He's not in charge of your lives. Jesus was calling him out on that. Just saying you have a Bible, just saying you go to church, just saying this, that, or the other thing doesn't make you saved, doesn't make you right with God. But him being Lord of your life does. You obeying his word does. You doing what the word of God says. That's the lordship he wants. So important. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulations, that we may be able to, uh, to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Now, he's trying to say that very simply, I mean, it's, he says the word comfort a lot, but we're going through great tribulation as a, as a minister of the gospel all over the world, and God comforts us as we go through these difficult times. Paul went through a lot of difficult things, but he understands the purpose of it. He's not complaining, God, why me? How come I'm always the one that gets beat up? How come I'm always the one that gets stoned? Paul's saying, no, the reason this happens to me is because I God can then comfort me, and then I can hear about what you're going through, and I can comfort you and tell you I've been through something very similar, and it's wonderful. God always comforts us. He'll comfort you as well. I can't say that if I've gone through that. It's very important. Paul says, I'm going to comfort you with the comfort that we receive from God in our trials and tribulations. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. Now, if we are afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effective for enduring the same suffering which we also suffer. Or, if we are comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. And our hope for you is steadfast, because we know that as you are partakers of the sufferings, so also you will partake of the consolation. Paul's actually excited about it. I think... um, One of the things that comes up a lot is, you know, if God is a God of love, why am I going through difficult situations? Why am I going through trials? Why are things not straightening out faster? Um, Why are bad things happening to me? I seem to be doing everything right. Well, that comes from the impression that if I'm a good little boy or a good little girl, bad things aren't going to happen to us, that the world isn't going to be at odds with us, that we're going to have an easier life. But That's not what we read, and that's not what's in the gospel. That's not what's in the scriptures. Paul did not have an easy life. It's very difficult. I don't think any of us could ever even come close to the things that Paul went through. And he's not complaining about it. He's saying, no, this is an opportunity for God to comfort me. And that way, when I go through it and I get comforted, then I'm I'm just a better minister for you when you go through it. He has control. One of the fruits of the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is love, but one of the attributes of that is self-control. 
I think we miss out on that a lot. We feel helpless and hopeless in our, when our emotions take over. They're not supposed to. You know how you say, well, that guy's in anger management you know, courses. He needs anger management classes. That's not the only emotion that we need to have control of. We have control of all of our emotions. I have to have control over my sorrow too, my sadness. I have control over that. I'm not powerless. We, we end up being, I'm just ruled by emotions and I'm, I'm like a, a ship on top of the wave of emotions in my life and I'm tossed to and fro. That's why Christ came to even that out in your life, to smooth that out. We're in control. I don't have to be angry with you. That's a choice I make. I don't have to be sorrowful about that. Paul gets, I mean, he gets stoned and left for dead outside of the city, and he brushes off the pile of rocks and gets back up and walks back into the city. That's control over your emotions. I'd be gathering them up, saying, Who's the, who is Bob? The guy that threw the first rock, and I'd be throwing them at him. You could do that. Paul says, no, 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 I'm still alive. Must mean, you know, sort of. It must mean I need to continue to minister. This Corinthian church could write them off. Hey, have it. Have your guys. Go ahead. Yeah, you're doing really well. I can see how you're divided and the whole church is in flames uh, and you're just going down with this burning ship. Not my problem anymore. I gave you the truth. That's all I can say. I'm walking away from this. Not Paul. He loves him too much. Talk about control of your emotions. That's all they did was beat him down behind his back. When he wasn't there, he goes, you guys are awfully bold when I'm out there. I am coming, you know. You know. Ooh. So they straighten up. Paul has a love and a sincere love for these people, regardless of how they feel about it. It makes no difference. He loves Jesus. You know, Jesus loves them. He sees them as, have you ever read that prophet um, um, Hosea? Um, am I thinking of the right one? He's the guy that had to marry the prostitute. Is that right? Yeah. Gee whiz. He was trying to, in his life, what God was trying to show through Hosea, who married the prostitute, and she kept going after other guys, after other guys, after other guys. And he would have to go to the auction block, or the prostitute auction block, and buy her back for himself over and over again. You know. And you think, my goodness, I... I don't think my ministry is that bad after all, you know, kind of thing. I mean, can you imagine being called to that? That's the example. I need you to do something, Hosea. Anything, God. Whoa, did not see that coming, you know. Because he wanted to demonstrate through this man, Hosea, who was obedient and did exactly what he was supposed to do, what it was like for God to be married to Israel. And how it wasn't that I was upset that I'm buying you off the auction block because I'm jealous and I can't believe you hurt my feelings and you did this to me. But he says she has no idea what she's gotten herself into. His love was for her was God's love for Israel. Hosea's love for his wife was so deep that it was like she has no idea how much harm she's doing to herself, how badly that person's going to treat her, how horrible that other God is in their lives and how it's going to ruin them. I will do anything I can do to protect her from that. The jealousy that God has for his people has nothing to do with his pride or his, you know, his reputation. It has to do with everything about the one he loves being harmed by her decisions. And if we can get that into our hearts about our relationship with God, 
That God loves me so much that he's willing to come for me and pull me out of these horrible decisions that I've made in my life and bring me back from the precipice of making another horrible mistake and buying me back and pulling me back and allowing me to come back, not because of anything other than his pure love for me. He's actually concerned about me hurting myself. Things that I'm going through, Paul says, are for your benefit, and I'm okay with that. Because I want you to see how God can console people in tough times. And if it causes, if I need to go through tough times for you to see how God can console so that you can be consoled when you go through tough times, I'm willing to do it. That's important to Paul. That's a self-sacrifice. That is a love. That is a, that's a person who truly loves Jesus Christ. Verse 8. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia that we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we were despairing even of life. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us, and whom we trust that he will still deliver us. Make note of that, and we'll continue on here, but then we'll go back to that. You also helping together in prayer for us that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the gift granted to us through many. First of all, thank you for praying for us, Paul says. It meant a lot, and we knew that God answered those prayers. But in the middle of this trial, we were despairing unto death. Now, Paul, who's gone through a lot of stuff to write this, it must have been absolutely horrific, whatever it was. He doesn't really give us a whole lot of details as to what time period this is. We think this is around Acts 19 that he writes this second Corinthian letter. So there's a lot of things in his past, but we know that the scripture doesn't tell us everything, you know? And so Paul is talking about a moment in time where he was so despairing unto life. Uh, the sentence of death, it's just a matter of time. There was no way. We had resigned ourselves to tomorrow we'll be in heaven is the idea. At any moment, we're going to be there. There was no way. He wasn't looking for salvation. He wasn't looking for a resurrection from the dead like he did with the stoning. Or It was beyond all of that. So this is heavy. He says, but God delivered us. And what he says here is very interesting. Past, present, and future deliverance. Who delivered, past tense, us from so great a death who does deliver us currently, presently, still delivering us, and who will still deliver us in the future. He's constantly at work in our lives. He's constantly doing it. I can think of the times when I wasn't a born-again believer, how many times God stepped in and saved me from certain problems in my life, certain death. You know, we don't need to go into details. It doesn't make any difference. He, was, he delivered me from many, many things that should have ended me. He currently is doing the same thing, protecting me from stupid mistakes, horrible decisions, things like that. He's guarding me if I'm paying attention. And I know that because of the past and because of what he's doing now, he's going to continue to do that in my life. I can rest in that. Paul wants the Corinthian church to know that too. God has delivered you. He is delivering you. He will deliver you. And I hope you know that tonight, past, present, and future. But thank you for praying for us, he says. It means a lot. It's not like, it's not like I, uh, it's not like, it's not like, and I don't know, I don't mean to throw everybody under the bus. I'll throw myself under the bus. But sometimes it's like, yeah, I'll pray for you. And oh, thank you for your prayers. And that's about as much as it means, you know. Eh, you know, what, what a sweet thought. You're going to pray for me. Nobody expects God to say, okay, I'm going to pray for you. 
And then God shows up and does something, says, you know, you're welcome. Prayed for you. Glad he got you out of that mess. That is the idea behind prayer, though. I mean, that is why we pray. I know we know that. But when I say I'm going to pray for you, I mean, I'm going to pray for you. And I expect something to happen. I expect it. And that's how we pray. Paul's. that's exactly what he's saying. We were despairing unto death. We know you were praying for us because out of nowhere is the idea. We got delivered. Thank you for your prayers. Paul is honestly saying, your prayer, Corinthian church, and this is encouraging them, and here's why. He's the apostle Paul. Why wouldn't God just listen to Paul? You know, I prayed and God did it. I mean, that's just kind of how Paul operated. His, his apron from, from working where he held his, I don't know, his sewing kit or whatever for tent making, whatever that apron was that he wore, the sweat, you know, sweaty, they would pass that around and it would heal people. So if all people needed to be praying for their own situation, it would be Paul and God would get them out of it, right? Paul's saying, we were done. We had resigned ourselves to God not answering our prayer and we were going to go through the fire, and this was going to be the end of us. But out of nowhere, when we stopped praying, obviously, or something happened, you, we know you were praying, and God heard you. Well, how would that make you feel as a Corinthian church? God heard my prayer over your prayer. I mean, he was waiting for us to pray, and God delivered. That's encouraging. And so Paul wants to encourage these folks. Even after all they've done, he wants to bless them and encourage them. So thank you for praying for me. Verse 12, for our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God and more abundantly toward you. For we are not writing any other thing to you than what you read or understand or what you read and understand. Now, I trust you uh, will understand, even to the end, as also you've understood us in part, that we are your boast as you also are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. Paul saying the reason we're doing this is because we want to boast about you when we get to heaven. That Corinthian church, what a great church. I don't know that he could have before the first letter, you know. But he also wants them to be able to boast about him. You know, Paul, oh, what a guy. What an amazing guy. He had such a heart for us, you know. Paul says, I ought to be your boast because you certainly are my boast, is the idea. The boast of one another, not each other, not ourselves, but to boast of each other is what we should do. This simplicity and godly sincerity, don't ever, ever lose that. If I can encourage you in one thing tonight, if you hear anything tonight, tune back in. Stay sincere with the Lord and keep it simple with the Lord. Don't get complicated. Don't get weirded out by things or books that you've read. Read the Gospels. Read the Word of God. Let it teach you. Let the Holy... It's a very simple thing. It's it's got a lot. It can go very deep, but it never goes deeper than the simplicity. It doesn't get more complicated. It gets more clear as you read God's Word. That's very important. If it gets more complicated, we're doing it wrong. We're doing it wrong because it still needs to be by the end of my life at the age of 90 years old, if I make it that far, my gospel should be even more clear and more concise, simple, that even a child can understand it. I ought to, at the age of 90, be able to tell a five-year-old what it means to be saved. It should not be like, "Ah, I'd love to tell you, but it's as I've grown in the Lord, it's become way too complicated for little people like you. Ah, then you've grown away from Christ, which is what the Corinthian church had done. They'd moved away 
from the simplicity. Keep it simple. The sincerity, the word sincerity means without wax. It's the Greek word without wax. And what they would do was you can imagine carving a statue out of pure marble, you know, and the Grecian, you know, they love carving. I mean, they were just wonderful sculptors, you know. So there they are chiseling, and you're working on the final thing of the nose, and there goes the nose on the floor. All that work, you know. Some of the, some of the sculptures I've seen, just amazing how they can make it look like the, the woman that wears the veil, and it looks like she's wearing a veil, but it's made of rock. How do you do that? You know, just as beautiful. Well, oh, there goes the nose. Well, we have a situation, you know. <laughs> this is a custom piece for Bob over here, and he's not going to be happy. He's been waiting three years for this thing, and I just knocked the nose off, you know. So they would take wax, a little marble dust, mix it together, and keep this in a cool part of your house this is the idea. Paul says, my relationship with God is without wax. You apply a little bit of heat to people's lives, and you'll see how sincere they are, how without wax they are. Sometimes the nose falls off, unfortunately. You realize, oh, there was wax involved. It's a fraud. It's not genuine. Paul says, my relationship with God is simple, and it's without wax. Now, the Greeks understood that. There's nothing worse than buying a $5,000 piece of art or more and find out that it was cobbled together, you know, kind of thing. I'm not afraid of heat in my life, in my walk with Jesus. In fact, it helps me. And that is throughout the New Testament. Peter warns us about it. Paul warns us about it. And a little bit of heat applied to my walk with Jesus Christ purifies and exposes everything that's not of him in my life. And I want that because I can add wax to my life. I can do that. Any one of us can do that. We can be well disingenuous with our faith. We let people think you know, that we're further along or that we're higher up or whatever it is. We're deeper with God than we really are. Paul says, my relationship with God is without wax. And believe me, of, of all the people that had heat applied to his life, it was him. And he is still writing the second letter to the Corinthian church. See, it doesn't always have to be a beat down. It doesn't always have to be obvious. I think we're all kind of prepared for that. When the world comes against us as Christians, I'm going to stand up for Jesus. They can put me at the stake and I will burn. It's a whole other thing when someone calls out, calls out your reputation behind your back. Will I still have a sincere love for that person a without wax relationship with them, even though I know what they say or what they do you know, towards me. Can you still have it? Paul has that. The heat of the Corinthian church's scathing comments about him have caused him to write love letters back to them. They're a little rough, mind you, but they're still love letters. If he didn't love them, he wouldn't have wrote them. Verse 15. And in this confidence, I intended to come to you before that you might have a second benefit. I really did. He's going to go over this several times. I really wanted to see you, to pass by way of you to Macedonia, to come again from Macedonia to you and be helped by you on my way to Judea. Therefore, when I was planning this, did I do it lightly? Or the things I plan, do I plan according to the flesh that with me there should be yes, yes, and no, no? But as God is faithful, our word to you was not yes and no. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you, 
by us, by me, Silvanus Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him was yes. It's always in him. Now, even Peter says, sometimes when I read Paul, it's hard to understand. Well, I'll do my best to help you. Look, I told you I was coming to you, but I haven't been there yet. It's not that I was lying. It's not that my yes isn't yes and my no is no. It's not that I'm a, a creep. It's that when I said it to you, it was if the Lord wills. And obviously it hasn't happened yet. So it's not like I didn't keep my word. It's just that plans didn't work out the way they were supposed to. And I'll read it to you in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 19. But I will come to you shortly if the Lord wills. And I will know not the word of those who are puffed up, but, but the power. He's going on and on, but he's saying, if the Lord wills, I'm going to come to you. That's my plan. That's my heart. That's my desire. I want to get there, but it didn't come to fruition. It doesn't mean that I was a liar or that I'm a flake. It just means it didn't happen. And so he tries to calm them down a little bit, says, look, I don't know who's telling you that I'm, you know, I don't keep my word, but I do. In fact, what I said to you, the promise was in him. It's in him. So give me a break, you know, um, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 36 through 37, Jesus is preaching. He says, nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. That's the truth. But let your yes be yes and your no be no, for whatever is, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. Don't make promises. Don't swear to God. I swear to God I'm going to be there. I swear to God I'm going to do this. He said, Jesus says, Just, you can stop that. Just say, you're going to or you're not going to. Let that be enough, but don't bring me into it is the idea because you can't even make one hair white or black on your head. You have no power, no control. James follows up with this in chapter four, verses 13 through 15. Good brother, come now you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit. And it's your five-year plan. I got my five-year plan. He says, hey, you guys that are making these five-year plans, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow, what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. Always qualify that. And Paul says it so quickly in 1 Corinthians, they probably didn't pick up on it. I said, if the Lord wills. You know? I think it's important to know when we talk about things with people and share, hey, I've got these great plans. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. If the Lord wills. Because it may not be his will. Or he may have different plans or different timeline. I'm sincere in my heart. I'm without wax. I really want to get to see you, Corinthians, but it just hasn't happened yet. I have tried. I have tried. And that's all Paul's trying to say. But as God is faithful, our word to you was not yes or no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, Silvanus Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him was yes. For all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God, who also has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. All the promises of God in God are yes and amen. They're all fulfilled. They're all fulfilled in him. That's nothing we have to work for. I love that. You know, um, you hear, you know, people say, or T-shirts, you know, or sayings, you know, um, um, God said it, I believe it, that's it, you know, kind of thing or whatever. And, and that's good. But it, it, it's actually, God said it, it's done. The believing part makes, we didn't have any say in it. God said it, it's true. 
Whether you believe it or not makes no difference at all. You just got on board the right train is all that means when you say that. But God said it, it's true. All the promises of God are yes and am. You want to go to heaven, you believe on his son, Jesus Christ. Whether you believe it or not makes no difference. That's a fact. That's a, that's a universal fact for God. Believe on Jesus Christ, you're going to go to heaven. You trust in him. Okay. Um, and that's all the promises of God in Jesus Christ are yes and amen. Um, you can guarantee it. You can hold on to that. Now, Moreover, he says, verse 23, I call God as witness against my soul that to spare you, I came no more to Corinth. Not that we have dominion over your faith, but our fellow workers for your joy, for by, way, by faith you stand. Now, that's an interesting one. I don't have dominion over you. He doesn't. And anybody that says they do, it's dangerous. I, I've learned... Um, and I've grown up in Calvary Chapel, so this is just my heritage. I know you've all grown up in different churches, some of you. Some of you have grown up in Calvary. But we keep, Pastor Chuck's always encouraged us as pastors, at almost at every conference, keep a light touch on the people. Just keep a light touch. They want to go, let them go. They want to stay, let them stay. You don't want to tie people to the chairs. It's the last thing you want, just go. And there's no condemnation. Just enjoy your walk. I, do what God's leading you to do. We, we're not here to... Be the Holy Spirit in your life. You can't do that for people. As a mentorship, as a discipleship program, any of the things that we do in the church to bring people up in the Lord, we have to be careful to keep a light touch on the people you're helping. Keep a very light touch on them. You can't tie them down. You can't say, you weren't there on Monday. You know? You're accountable to me. If, they don't, if they're not accountable to God in their own private life, what makes them think they're going to be accountable to you? You know, I'm all for iron sharpens iron. I, I believe that with all my heart. We do. Iron sharpens iron. But if the other iron doesn't show up, you know, we have to be careful about that. Keep a light touch on the people. You know, I, I hear that a lot. You know, you know what people say? Calvary Chapel's a cult. We're the exact opposite of a cult. I don't care where you go to church. I still believe you're saved. A cult doesn't believe that. A cult thinks you have to be here to be saved. I don't believe that. Nobody in Calvary Chapel believes that. You can be a Baptist. You can be an assembly of God. You can be a... Well, there's a few I might... No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> that has nothing to do with your salvation. Go, be blessed. I'll see you in heaven. We're just going to different parts of God's field, his pasture. That's okay. A cult says, absolutely not. Everybody's wrong. We're the only right ones. Join the mothership kind of thing. No, that's a cult. That's weird. No, light touch on the people. Paul says, I don't have dominion over you. I can't tell you. It's your walk with Jesus. Now, Paul, now, I, now here's the scripture I came up with before we close. I got two minutes. You still have to listen. First Corinthians chapter five. And now he says, I don't have dominion over here, but look what he writes. And this, mean, and, and this is without dominion. So when you read it, you have to say, God, Paul's kind of heavy-handed. No, he's just strong in his opinion. He's not, saying, he's not saying he's making them. He's just saying, look, you can call people out on their sin. You can tell people to get right with Jesus and not have dominion over them. There's nothing wrong with telling people that is sin. That's wrong. You've got to quit. You don't have dominion over me. I know. If I had dominion over you, you'd be locked up in my basement and done, doing none of that stuff. But I don't have dominion over you. You can still go do whatever you want to do. I'm just telling you as a brother or sister, you're going to get hurt. Paul writes this to them. 
It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles that a man has his father's wife, exclamation point, and you are puffed up and have not rather mourned or been sad about this sin, that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I indeed, as absent in the body but present in spirit, have already judged. But we're supposed to judge anybody. Paul says, no, I'm looking at the situation saying, I don't, yeah, I, don't, I don't know how to say it. That's sin. It needs to quit. He needs to stop. You don't have dominion over me. Of course I don't. I still have the obligation as your pastor to tell you that's wrong. Quit it. You know, quit judging me. That's not what he means by that. The, the, when Jesus says don't judge, he says you can't sentence people. And we've gone over this over. I, I think we get this now, but I, I just have to get it there. For me to point out sin or to recognize sin in somebody's life is not judgment. Judgment is me saying, I see that you've sinned, Della. Uh, I used it. Yeah. And so, and so you need to do this, that, or the other thing. And then after that, you're going to do this, that, or the other thing. That's dominion. That's judgment. I'm passing sentence and penalties. I can't do that. I'm not authorized. There's one judge. You know, Della stands before, sorry, you're in the front row. You're close anyway. <laughs> It's always Sam. I had to pick on the next person over. You see what I mean? That's judgment. That's dominion. That's dangerous. That's unbiblical. But to call someone out and say, hey, you know, brother, that's wrong. You can't be doing that. That's love. To, to, to not do that is not being not judgmental. It's being unloving, you know? And so he says that. And he's very clear. And so that's his first letter. He goes, but I don't have dominion over you. I'm a fellow worker with you. I'm alongside you. I'm saved like you are. I'm going to get to heaven based off of what Christ has done on the cross, just like you're going to get to heaven based off what Christ has done on the cross for you. I'm the same. I've just been called to be an apostle. I've just been called to be a pastor teacher over this church. I've just been called to teach the truth, you know? Very good. Great start to this second letter. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Paul's sweet, sweet heart. So bold, but it's it's it's... Bold love is what it is. And I'm so thankful for him in, in my life. I know he's not alive, but his word that he wrote by your Holy Spirit in my life convicts, convicts me, brings me closer to you, causes me to repent, brings me to a closer walk with you. God, I appreciate all of that. So Lord, we thank you for your word tonight. Now, we want to say, Lord Jesus we know you're the Christ. We know that you're a Savior. You know, we know that you died on the cross for our sins, but I want you to be Lord of my life. I want you to make the decisions. I want to pray and ask you for guidance and direction. I want you to have dominion over me. So tonight we give that to you, Lord. Help us, Lord. We'll do what we plan in our hearts, but you'll direct our steps as the Lord wills in our lives, as you, as you the Lord of our lives, wills. That's what we want to do. I bless these folks as they go tonight. Help them have a wonderful rest of the week. Keep our eyes wide open for spiritual opportunities, Lord. Moments where we can minister to other people who are hurting and that we can help by sharing your word or sharing your love with them in any way. Lord, help us to be ready for that this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.